In my experience, it doesn't start long after the birth. Mom and dad get the first opportunity to look into the face of a newborn and ask this question, whom do we see? Whom do we see? And then ultimately, siblings perhaps, grandparents, aunts, uncles, they get their chance. Who, who does this baby look like? I, I see dad in the nose, and I see mom in the eyes, and they just look at that, that, that beautiful baby. Who do I see? Now, there's a dead giveaway. In our family, if the head of the baby is almost comically large, if the cranium is just massive, it's a Magnuson, okay? You see the Magnuson. If, if, if the cheeks and jowls are so large, no grandma will ever be able to stop from pinching them incessantly, it's a Magnuson, okay? You just know it came from the Peter Magnuson side, not, not from the Tabitha Burt side. That just is the reality. Um, but nonetheless, probably you have been uh, in a similar place, whether it's been your child or a child that you've been looking at. Who do you see? Well, this morning I just want to put in front of you the idea that all around the world today on this Christmas Eve, there will be people in church gathering, if you will, around the manger. They'll have accepted the invitation to, to come and see. Remember last week we studied those words of the angel, I bring you good tidings of great joy, and then the direction, you will find him. And, and so as people around the country and around the world come today, the question that should be on their minds is, whom do I see in that manger? As I look into that face, again, if you will, of the baby in Bethlehem, whom do I see? What does he look like? And I want to suggest for you this this morning that this is, this is the essential question that, that we should be answering for ourselves this Christmas season. What do I believe about that child in the manger? Now, as we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark together, we, we have been seeing the way that Mark is painting the face of Jesus, if you will. Mark is portraying him for us as a servant, yes, but more than a servant, a, a servant king. The one who gets on a donkey and rides into Jerusalem knowing the Old Testament prophecy saying, your king is coming to you on a donkey. He knew that. He was embracing the Old Testament prophecy that he was king. Two weeks ago when we studied, or perhaps I guess three weeks ago now, when, when we studied Jesus being tried before the Sanhedrin, you remember when the high priest just gets sick and tired of this witnesses dissembling and lying and their story is falling apart. He finally just asked the prisoner, Tell me, I'm putting you under oath. Are, are you the son of the blessed one? Are you the son of God? And you can just see Jesus almost pulling his shoulders back and saying, I am. 
And then he goes on to say what? He says, and you're going to see me, the Son of Man, coming in the clouds of heaven, sitting on the Father's right hand. Jesus was making sure that that Sanhedrin knew who he was. And now we're brought before Pilate. No longer just the, the Jewish governing body, like the Jewish Supreme Court, as the Sanhedrin was, but we're brought before the Roman governor, a man we haven't been introduced to before previously in the Gospel of Mark, a man named Pilate. And Pilate is going to ask him an important question. He is going to say to him this, Art thou the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? He looks into Jesus' face, and what does he see? He sees a battered man, a bloody man, a bruised man, a man with no soldiers behind him, a man with not even followers clamoring for him to be released, an isolated, helpless man. And almost, I imagine, with a sneer on his face, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And listen to what Jesus says to him. Thou sayest it, you said it. Or we might say, it's as you say, what is Jesus trying to communicate to Pilate? What is the Holy Spirit trying to communicate to us? Are you a king? It's as you said. Yep. You said it. What I want to do this morning is not the typical Christmas approach. We're going to look at Pilate. We're going to look at Pilate trying to investigate whether Jesus truly was a king, whether he had any reason to be concerned about this king. But ultimately, I want to turn around this mirror to all of us and suggest that just like Pilate looking into the face of Jesus and assessing who he is, just like a mother and father looking into the, into the face of a baby and saying, whom does this resemble? And just like all of us today coming around the Christmas story and looking into the face of the baby born at, at Bethlehem, my question for you today is, whom do you see when you look at Jesus of Nazareth? What I want to suggest today is something that I don't believe Pilate ever grasped. That this man was a different kind of king. That's the title of our message this morning, simply, A Different Kind of of king. It's very important, really, how you view, how you believe about Jesus of Nazareth and what he did when he came to earth. And may God give us wisdom and insight as we look into his word together this morning. Well, what's going on here in this context? What's going on as we are now beginning Mark chapter 15, only two more chapters to go in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Well, let's just backtrack briefly. Jesus has been arrested by a large crowd that would have contained both Jewish temple guards and Roman soldiers. And a massive crowd comes to capture him in the middle of the night, perhaps around 1 o'clock in the morning. He is taken back to uh, the, the house of the high priest, where there would have been a large courtyard, and brought in to be tried by the Jewish religious authorities. This was an illegal trial. It was in the middle of the night, which was not allowed for 
the Jews to be trying someone at that time. It violated Jewish due process. But around 3 o'clock in the morning, likely, Jesus is being tried, and he is mostly staying silent to everything that is said about him, but now the high priest finally, after all the witnesses, don't get them where they want on this charge. They have already decided that he is guilty and needs to be put to death. Finally, the high priest asks... He says, Art thou the Christ, the the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And at that point, they condemn him to death. And verse 65 says, And some began to spit on him and and to cover his face and to buffet him, literally to punch him as if with closed fist, and to say unto him, Prophesy, and the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. And so you can see this man being brutalized and assaulted in the midst of this body that is supposed to be protecting his rights, that is supposed to be giving him due process, that is to be, uh, supposed to be ensuring that a guilty man, or an innocent man, I'm sorry, should be punished. And then we fast forward through the scene where Peter now crumbles, this rock crumbles in weakness as he denies Jesus out of fear and and a desire for self-protection. And now notice chapter 15 and verse 1. And straightway or immediately, that's one of Mark's favorite words, in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. Now what's going on? Well, if you had the show trial or if you had the backroom trial, what are you going to need to give it a stamp of legitimacy? You're going to need to do another trial, but following the rules, right? And from comparing the other gospel accounts, we see that Jesus was convicted in the middle of the night, sometime around 3 a.m. And then right around daybreak, they gather together and they do it again. Why? Again, to put a stamp of legitimacy on it, that this was following Jewish custom. And then what do they do? Verse 1 says, And they bound Jesus. They tied him up or put him in, in, in restraint and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now, why would they deliver him to Pilate? Well, let's pick it up here with what first I'm going to call the charge. The charge, the prosecution that was laid against Jesus. He's already been convicted in the Jewish Supreme Court. So why do they now need to lead him to Pilate? There is some historical dispute about this, but there is certainly some contemporaneous sources suggesting that the Jews had no right to execute capital uh, uh, punishment on victims. And we see that even from secular sources. There is a source, of course, in the Gospel itself, in the book of John, where the people come before Pilate and say, we have no right to put someone to death. And there actually is some corroborating contemporaneous sources to suggest that, that they indeed did not have this responsibility, that Pilate was the executioner. They had to go through him to execute Jesus, unless it was just going to be a mob stoning, as we see for someone like Stephen uh, in the New Testament as just one example. 
And so you can just see now these people, they have tried to gloss over their lack of due process, and now they drag him, Jesus, again, just bloodied and bruised and battered from his assault, and they bring him before Pilate, and there's even, again, historical evidence to to, to support this. The idea that they would have been bringing him in the very first in the morning, there, there, are, there, there is evidence that this indeed what would have been the approach, that Pilate would have taken up this matter at the very first thing in the morning before he got along with the rest of his day. And so they bring him to Pilate first thing in the morning. And notice what Pilate asks him in verse 2, Art thou the king of the Jews? Art thou the king of the Jews? Now, notice first that he's, he's been delivered to the Gentiles. And this is important because Jesus predicted that he would be. You, I'll just give you a cross-reference. Mark 10 and verse 33. Jesus says expressly, we're going to go up to Jerusalem and they're going to deliver me to the Gentiles. And just like he had prophesied, it comes to pass. Now, Pilate is the one who has this first question for him. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, why was he asking this question? Because that was the charge. That was the accusation. And we don't have this in the book of Mark, but we have it in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 23, verse 1 to 2, listen to how it's presented to the judge, to Judge Pilate. The whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation. Literally, the idea is of deceiving them or misleading them or leading them down the wrong path. This guy is confusing everybody, our whole nation. But they know they need more than that to get Pilate's attention. What does he care about doctrine? What does he care about their theology? You go take care of your own theology. So listen to what else they add from Luke 23. They say, and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. He tells us not to pay taxes. Now, what did they think? Well, that'll get Pilate's attention. Pilate was the one, the Roman governor, who collected taxes. Surely this would get his attention. And listen to how they conclude it. Saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate, are you paying attention? Pilate, you know that under your view, there's no king but Caesar. And he deserves all the taxes. What's this guy saying? He's saying he's a king. And we shouldn't pay taxes. Now, did Jesus say that? No, in fact, he said exactly the opposite. We studied in the Gospel of Mark when, when they said, should we pay taxes? And Jesus took a Roman coin and he says, whose face is on this coin? And they say, Caesar. He says, okay, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But that's apparently they're going to twist to try to suggest that Jesus is saying they shouldn't pay taxes. And so now Pilate is going to just come right to the point. Are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? Because again, in his mind, who's the only king of the Jews? Caesar is. Operating through whom? Pilate. Now, step back for a moment. Who, who is Pilate? Pilate actually is one of the longest tenured Judean governors of the Roman Empire. Most sources today would acknowledge that Pilate was governor between about AD 26 and about AD 36. For about 10 years, Pilate was the governor of 
Judea. Judea was under Roman rule. Caesar was king. And you had now Pilate exercising Roman rule. What did he do? Well, as we said, he was a judge. He could execute capital punishment. He would sentence someone to die. He collected taxes. He was something of enforcing the police state. If there was a riot in Jerusalem, who was going to get called to account? Pilate was. If there was a mob uprising, whose job was going to be on the line? Pilate's job. His job was to preserve the peace and security of the Roman rule. Now again, this Pilate is attested to historically. There's actually found in the city of Caesarea, there's a very famous inscription called the Pilate Stone. P-I-L-A-T-E, the Pilate Stone. It actually lists Pilate's name on it, and it has an inscription to Caesar as the one that Pilate looked up to, the one that had, that had authority over Pilate. And also, historical accounts suggest that Pilate was a very cruel man. Pilate was a man that was getting into tension with the Jewish people. There's a story that Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells of Pilate bringing in these soldiers, sweeping them into Jerusalem with the inscriptions of Caesar on it. And the Jews absolutely saw that as this gross idolatry in their city, around their temple. And they were so outraged about it that when Pilate went back to his house in Caesarea, the Jews went and harassed him for five days, demanding that he remove these images of Caesar. And so the story goes, as Josephus tells us, tells it that, that Pilate brought them into the amphitheater and with, with his soldiers and basically threatened to kill them, to have them slaughtered. And the Jews, as Josephus and Josephus telling, stood up so proudly and so boldly in the face of death that Caesar ultimately relented took down the shields. But you see other historical accounts where he just is, is having these conflicts with these unruly Jews. And again, you see this again here in this flavor of a mob is starting to form and, and people are starting to get upset and the temperature is starting to rise. And so now Pilate is between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, he's got to know, are you saying you're a king? Are you saying you are in rebellion against Caesar, my boss? He's got to figure that out. But on the other hand, he he also has to figure out how to placate the Jews, how to make sure that another riot is not going to come up that could endanger his job. In fact, in AD 36, at the end of his tenure, Josephus reports that there was a riot that led to his ultimate um, uh, losing of his position. And he basically disappears from history. We don't know what happened to Pilate after about AD 36. Other than that, he was no longer the governor of Judea. There was a riot. He went back to Rome, was on trial, and he disappears. What happened? We don't know. So here's where Pilate is, and he goes right to the heart of it. Are you a king? Are you saying that you are Christ the king? Now, let's look secondly at what I'm going to call not just the charge, but the contrast. Look at what Jesus says. And he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it. You said it. Now, I want to just ask you for a minute. Does that strike you as a kind of ambiguous response? It, it does to me. Jesus could have said, yes, I am the king of the Jews. He could have said, no, 
I'm not the king of the Jews. Instead, he said, it's as you say. You're the one who said it. Now, why would Jesus say that? Now, one clue to this would come, and I'll just give you the reference here, when you understand what Jesus said to Pilate privately in John chapter 18. In John chapter 18, Jesus has a private audience with Pilate, and he explains more about what his kingdom really was. But here, when Pilate asks him, perhaps publicly, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers a little bit more ambiguously. Now, what is he saying? Well, let's just imagine for a minute if Jesus had been more straightforward. If he had said, yes, I am. I am the king of the Jews. What he would have been acknowledging is that he was the kind of king that the Jews were trying to portray him as being. He's a threat to Caesar. He's demanding that we don't pay taxes. Jesus couldn't say, yes, I'm the king of the Jews that they say I am. That had been false. He wasn't that kind of king. But could Jesus rightly have said no? No, I'm not the king of the Jews. No, that wouldn't have been honest either. Because he was a king. And he has been portraying himself as a king. A different kind of king. And so Jesus says, it's as you say, I am a king. Do you know what I think he's saying is, you know, I am a king, but I'm going to have to explain that a little bit more to you. Do you want to hear? Do you want to understand what I mean when I said, it's as you say, I, I, I am a king? Well, Pilate didn't really care about hearing. We know this because in John chapter 18, when Jesus explains to him, my kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. You said it. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Well, that's a Christmas passage for you, isn't it? Why was Jesus born at Bethlehem? To bear witness to the truth. To testify to what was true. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, what is truth? And off he goes. Frankly, Pilate didn't care all that much what was true. What testimony Jesus had to bring about where his kingdom was from and what he came to do. You see, put yourself in Pilate's shoes. Who did he see? Are you a king? He saw a man who had been humiliated and battered by his own people. Are you a king? He saw a man who was being rejected by the chief priests, the religious leaders of his day. Are you a king? A man with no soldiers willing to fight on his behalf to spare him. Are you a king? A man for whom all his followers had fled and abandoned him. Are you a king? A man 
who didn't utter even a word in his own defense. Notice again, look what happens next. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? You're not even going to say a word? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. Look at everything they're accusing you of. The worst kind of criminal who needs to be put to death. But Jesus yet answered nothing so that Pilate marveled. He was amazed. You could, we could accurately say that Pilate had never seen someone like this. Why did, he, why, why did he marvel? Because again, put yourself in Pilate's shoes. You're the capital executioner. You're the one who determines life and death. What do you think every single prisoner that had come before Pilate on trial had been like? Pleading for life. Groveling. Begging. Arguing. Defending. I'm not guilty. I don't deserve to die. My accusers are wrong. And now a different kind of king sits before him. A king who said, it's as you say, with no army, with no apparent followers, with not even the kind of self-defense that Pilate had seen from all his other prisoners. And frankly, Pilate can't figure it out. Who is this guy? And why isn't he answering a word? You see, this one was different. And this leads, I think, ultimately to the tragedy of what we see from Pilate. Not only the charge, not only the contrast, but ultimately the conclusion that Pilate rendered. We'll look more about this, at this, Lord willing, next week when we study Barabbas. But Pilate comes out to the Jews and we see from other gospel passages that he says, I find no fault in him. I, I don't find him to be guilty. And again, those, the, the Jewish leaders are saying, crucify him, crucify him, end him, execute him. And, and Pilate is bargaining and he's offering to release him to them. And now he ultimately washes his hands of it all and says, I found him to be not guilty, but you take him and you deal with him as you please. What conclusion did Pilate make about him ultimately? Did, did Pilate conclude when he looked into that face that he was a king? That he was a different kind of king? No, I think what Pilate looked at him and saw was he's no threat. He's safe. Whatever he's talking about theology and doctrine, whatever these disputes about whether he's the Messiah, the King of the Jews, it has nothing to do with, with me and my job and Roman rule and Caesar as my boss. Whatever he is, he's safe. And so how did Pilate deal with it? As he so often did, he dealt with it solely as a matter of his own self-interest. Is there going to be a ride of the Jews? Well, I'll give them what they want, because otherwise my job might be on the line. I need to placate. I need to protect, ultimately, myself. Pilate's conclusion of Jesus, frankly, I think, was agnostic about whether he was the king of the Jews. All that mattered was that he was not a threat to Caesar 
or to Pilate. He was a different kind of king. And you know, friends, it matters an awful lot during this Christmas season what we think about who this child was in the manger. And it matters very much about whether we see him in the same way that the Bible does. It reminds me of a wonderful passage from the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Some of you have come across C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. And in one of these books, as Lucy has entered the kingdom, she has entered Narnia, and she is being spoken to by one of the, 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 the animals. And she's speaking, they're speaking of, of Aslan, who in that allegory is, is a picture of Jesus. And, and she says these words, she, she speaks of being fearful to see a lion. And she asks, she says, then he isn't safe? And Mr. Beaver in C.S. Lewis's telling says to her, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And in a similar idea, later in, in the Narnia series, the picture that comes back over and over again is, he isn't a tame lion. He isn't a tame lion. Now, 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 again, put yourself in the perspective of Pilate for whom whether he was a king or not was irrelevant. All that mattered was whether he was safe. And, and then now imagine coming around the manger at Bethlehem and seeing a helpless baby, one who has just been born and who is entirely dependent on his mother and father to protect him and to care for him and to keep him safe from the elements and, and any who would ha cause him harm. And we see that babe in a manger. We see Jesus in his helpless form. And it attracts us. It draws us the idea that God could become man, that he could become flesh. And for so many of us, that is such a beautiful picture that we celebrate at Christmas. Yes, he is a different kind of king in that way. A king who came with no fanfare other than what the angels gave him. A king who came impoverished. A king who came born to a single mother. A king who came under the scorn and social derision of those around him. Oh yes, he's a very different king. But we would do a disservice to ourselves if we didn't also realize that that baby in Bethlehem is a very different kind of king than the one who sits helpless in that manger. That as Mr. Beaver said to Lucy, of course he's not safe. He's not a tame lion. He's the king. And the tragedy for Pilate is that he looked into the face of Jesus and decided that he was no threat and he would allow this great injustice to be done against him. The greatest tragedy is that in the actual point of fact, in an eternal mindset, it was not Jesus who was standing before Pilate the judge. It was actually Pilate standing before Jesus the judge. And that Jesus, when he said, my kingdom is not of this, this world and he said to him 
I am come to bear witness of the truth that Pilate was the one who was standing before the judge, a, a one whom ultimately Pilate will stand before again one day and give account of himself and his life and his actions. And so it is for us, friends, that as we gather around the manger this morning, as we reflect on these great Christmas truths that we celebrate and sing about today, we should remember that Jesus is a different kind of king. Yes, the helpless babe born in a manger revealing to us the humility of God becoming incarnate. But the different kind of king of whom the angels sang that Christ the Lord is born. Listen to these words from Matthew chapter 2, this wonderful story of all the magi coming, descending on Bethlehem, searching for Jesus, these great and eminent men coming from the east. And what are they doing? They are coming to worship him. As Matthew 2.11 says, And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The story is there, God intending to signal to us that from the very beginning, the purpose of Jesus coming to earth was for men and women to come and bow before him and worship him. And so I ask you this morning, friends, are you coming not just to behold the babe in the manger? Are you coming to worship him? Are you coming to to bow before him? Are you coming to submit your life and your actions and your words to him as a different kind of king, the king that Pilate couldn't see and the king that so many around us today have not seen and will not see? I'm reminded of that wonderful old Christmas hymn, Once in Royal David's City. And listen to these wonderful words. And our eyes at last shall see him through his own redeeming love for that child so meek and gentle is our Lord in heaven above. And then the last verse. Not in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by, but in heaven we shall see him set at God's right hand on high. I end with the question with which I began. When you gather around the manger in this Christmas season, whom do you see? May you see, yes, the humble king, but also, yes, the holy king before whom you will stand and give account one day.